So yeah, it should be a really great time to celebrate the way God transforms lives of people like Kathleen. So make sure you've got that in the calendar, 10th of September. We'll now be hearing from the Bible before Jez comes to speak to us. So at City Light, we hear from the Bible every week because we believe that it is God's word. And as it is read and taught clearly, it is God speaking to us. Today, the Bible reading is from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 15. The words should come up on the screen behind me. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went down. We went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, was, we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Theatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of God. Uh, well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, it's so good to be diving into Acts 16 with you all this morning. And just to um, double back on some of the announcements before, again, next week, Barefoot Investor, great chance to get across your finances. And if you are someone who feels like you are actually pretty across them, to actually get better at that too. And I can see people giving each other some sideways glances there. So there's going to be some good, there's some people in attendance next week. So that'll be great. Um, and the other one is uh, baptisms, 10th of September. What a time as a church family to celebrate the grace of God at work in this church community. Uh, but also it's a time, if, you, if you're someone who's like, uh, look, I haven't been baptized since coming to faith, and that's something that you want to celebrate with your church family, please let us know. We'd love to be able to do that with you. So that's coming up on the 10th. Uh, but I'm going to pray for our time now as we dive into this story from Acts 16. Let's pray. Father God, you are God Almighty, and you are the one who's calling people from every tribe, nation, and tongue to yourself. You are the one who is reaching people all over the world and who's calling them by your Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus, to have their sin forgiven and washed away and to be made new and adopted in. And so, Father, we just pray that as we read your word that you would open our hearts to see not just words on a page or an ancient story, but to see this as your very word, as your authoritative word to us. And so we pray this, Lord, for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, here we're going to see in this passage 
that it's the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that is driving the mission of the church. And that without it, that nothing really would go forward. And this reminds me a little bit of a, a documentary I saw a couple of years ago, which was called 14 Peaks. Has anyone seen this? Yes, for the both of you, this is a cracking illustration. You got some pretty deep traction with this one. All right, but if you know about mountains, that's enough info you need to get into this doco. The premise is a guy called uh, Nirmal Perja, or Nims as he calls himself for short, is a Nepalese mountain climber, ex-military, ex-kind of Gurkha, which is sort of an elite sort of military force. And he wanted to climb all 14 peaks in the world that are over 8,000 meters. There are only 14 that are that high, and he wanted to climb all 14 of them in record time. Now, the first guy who did it was Reinhold Messner. You all know him, obviously. He did it. He, it took him to climb all 14 peaks 16 years. 16 years was the time frame. But Kim Chang brought that record down to a measly seven years. But Nims wanted to do it in seven months. And so the documentary is the story, and like, it's not really a spoiler, you've got to know, if you're going to do the documentary, he's going to make it, right? This, it's the story of how he climbs all 14 peaks in a seven-month period. You think, that is extraordinary. I remember when I was watching the documentary and the time frames were rolling through of how long this previously took. I was like, is this, is this guy some kind of alien creature who's, been, who's flown in from outer space to do this? Or is it the case that this sport has been run by complete amateurs up until this point and he's the only professional who's come in and just dominated? But then... And it was only subtle, and it was in part of an interview, and it, they just kind of snuck it in there, and then it disappeared again. There was just a, a small fact that was dropped that helped give some understandings as to how the time frames had dropped so radically. That from 7,500 metres or feet, I can't remember, both of them are quite high, but from that altitude upwards, he and his team had oxygen assistance. Now, I know, but don't be like, oh, well, then obviously it's easy. Like, this is still life-threatening stuff, right? He's st this is an mili ex-military guy, right? He's elite. It is still incredibly dangerous stuff. It's a, an incredible human effort. But it did explain just, I mean, the disparity, shrinking a record from seven years to seven months is an extraordinary leap forward. But I was shocked to see how much of an impact oxygen assistance had on that very task on the difference it made in the time frames, on how much quicker they could climb and then descend again. And it made me think, it's not a perfect illustration, but it makes me think of the church and trying to do the mission of God without the Spirit of God. That often, it's like doing it without oxygen assistance. The churches that try to go about the mission of God without relying on His Holy Spirit, the one who is carrying the mission forward, is like trying to achieve that record without oxygen. It's impossible. And they're just pushing and pushing, trying to get very little distance. And when churches do this, people get worn out and tired and eventually just give up or make excuses being like, look, I think the culture's too hard here. Maybe in other parts of the world the gospel can go forward or it feels impossible to save souls or it's just a joyless exercise or a drain. And so churches just get bogged down and it becomes a joyless obligation that we just give up on. But here we're going to see that in order to carry out this mission of God, that is to make more and stronger disciples, to see people reached and come to faith, cannot happen without the Spirit of God. 
that it's God's Spirit that drives the mission forward. And we're going to see in this passage that it's the Spirit of God that is guiding God's people. It's the Spirit of God that is opening people's hearts to respond to the gospel. And it's the Spirit of God that is giving people the joy that they need to continue on in the mission. Because it's not the case that even though the Spirit of God is driving the mission, that everything will be easy, or that there will be no adversity, or that there will be no rejection, or that there will be no hardships. No, in fact, we're going to see in this passage that the Spirit of God directs Paul and Silas specifically into very hard times. But at the same time, they see incredible breakthroughs. And so we're going to pick up the story here in chapter 16. But to fill you in on just where we've come from, last week we finished with two friends. Two friends who were more than just friends. They'd been through everything. Paul and Barnabas were gospel partners. They were brothers in the faith. They have a disagreement about which, whether they should take a guy called John Mark with them. And so they decide, look, we can't reconcile on this disagreement, so we need to part ways. And on that, at that point, Barnabas takes John Mark and goes to Cyprus, where Paul had been before with him. And Paul takes Silas up to the area which is modern-day Syria and up to a place called Cilicia. And along the way, he meets a young man named Timothy, who's later the, the same Timothy in the book of 1 and 2 Timothy that Paul writes a letter to. And they go throughout this region building up the church. And the section ends with this. It says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. We saw that through this last section, all these divisions around what the true gospel is and even disagreements about the best missional strategy doesn't result in the church falling apart, but actually it results in more people being added to the church, the church being strengthened and people's faith being strengthened and the mission going forward. And so that's where we're up to. And we pick up the story now with Paul as he heads west into what is now modern-day Turkey. And we pick up the story at sentence 6. It says this, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we're told that they go through the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey, but they don't preach the gospel there. They go through the area, but they don't preach the gospel there, and we're told because the Spirit forbids them. And we're not, Luke doesn't record here how or why the Spirit forbade them. We're just told that he did. And so it's an interesting thing to note that the Spirit, as he's guiding his people in the mission, is closing doors and opening them. And for whatever reason, through this time going through Turkey, he actually forbids them to speak the gospel and they continue through the area. And we're told that when they come to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not allow them. And again, we're not told how, whether it was a direct word or vision or whether it was just the fact that they couldn't get in for whatever practical reasons. And at that point, they're saying, well, look, oh, clearly it's the Spirit saying we're not meant to go into that region. But here, it is the Spirit that's guiding the mission. And as they go forward, they continue to Troas. And while Paul is in Troas, he receives a vision that makes clear why it is that they kind of just moved through the other areas. He receives a vision of a Macedonian man 
We're not told how he knows that he's Macedonian, whether he has a big T-shirt that has it on it or something like that. But it's clear to him that this is a man from Macedonia calling to them for help. And so they know that this is God calling them to go and speak the gospel into this area. And so they head towards Macedonia, and particularly towards a city called Philippi. And at this point, the account switches to first person. And this is the first time this has happened. So Luke, who is writing the account of Acts, now talks in us and we, presumably because this is the point at which he has joined the missionary journey. And so we're getting an eyewitness account of how all of this happened as we follow Paul through this region, and Luke is with them, recording all of this. And it continues in Acts 16, 11 to 15. It says, So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So they sail from Troas to Samothrace, and then to Neapolis. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce them, but if I do it confidently, you'll think that is. So let's go with that. And they go to Philippi, which is in Macedonia. And this is the Philippi that will later become the place to which Paul writes the letter of Philippians to the Philippian church and it's a letter that's characterized by joy and Philippi is a major city this isn't like a backwater town we're told that it's a major city in the region of Macedonia and we're told as well as that that it's a cultural center it's a Roman city this is not a Jewish city or a Jewish outpost that's familiar to Paul's cult you know Paul and his culture that it's a major Roman city and they go there and they decide on the Sabbath day to find a place of prayer so at this point, they're looking for other, probably Jewish believers who are living in this city. And as they go to find a place of prayer, they meet a group of women who are gathering to pray and worship. And here we're going to see, throughout the, the account of Acts, how God uses people to build up his church. And the beginning of the church at Philippi is first and foremost a prayer group of women, and then one, in particular, one particular woman, a woman named Lydia. And she's singled out here as someone who is running her own business. She deals in purple goods. Now, to modern ears, that doesn't sound very significant. You're like, okay, <laughs> a weird kind of niche sort of industry. But to say that she dealt in purple goods means because purple dye was extremely hard to get, it was very expensive. So what she's dealing in is clothes for very rich people. So this is kind of designer couture in the ancient world, right? Which means that she was a prominent woman. It means that she had money and that her business was actually thriving and that she obviously dealt with people who were of the upper class. But we're told that she's a worshipper of God, meaning that she was either potentially a Jewish woman or someone who converted to Judaism and was worshipping God. And when Paul and Silas come to meet them and speak to her, we're told that the Lord opens her heart. And as she does, as he does rather, she hears Paul's words and believes in the gospel. 
Now, last week, we talked about the fact that in order to come to faith, God, by His Holy Spirit, must do a new work in your heart. That's why it's called the new birth or regeneration. But it's also the case that in order to continually follow Jesus, we need the continual work of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts. Here, Lydia was one who worshipped God, but it's still the Lord who opened her heart to understand the gospel and to hear Paul's words and to apply it. When you come to faith, it's not like you get this one-off dose of grace and the Holy Spirit, and then it's kind of you from there on. No, it's God working through His people by the Holy Spirit, continually opening their hearts throughout their life. You can imagine in this way. Imagine, I've never done scuba diving, but imagine that you did, and on your first lesson, they said to you, look, this is how we're going to do the dive. It's a two-hour dive at a, wherever you do them, reefs, something like that. The Great Barrier Reef, why not? It's a two-hour dive, so what we're going to get you to do is to take the deepest breath of your life right now, and we'll actually give you some, I don't know, like pure oxygen. Is pure oxygen deadly or good? Anyway, let's say it's, let's say it's really good. We're going to give you pure oxygen, so take the biggest breath you possibly can now, because that's it for two hours. Now, if anyone told you that, unless you were insane, you would be like, no deal, I'm not doing it. But you know what, oftentimes, I think people think of the Christian life in this way. It's like you get one big dose of grace at the beginning, and then it's like, well, I hope that lasts you the rest of your life, because that's it from here on. Like God helps you out right at the beginning to come to faith, does a really unique work of the Holy Spirit then, but then he's like, all right, I did my bit, now it's over to you guys, you better take care of business until I come back. But that's not the case, and that's not how the Spirit works. That actually, to even hear the Word of God this morning, as we sit here, to not have our minds wander, or to not just hear the Word of God, and it washes over us like any other word. To hear God's Word as God's Word now, requires the Holy Spirit to work in your heart. We're told here for Lydia, that it was the Spirit that opened her heart, so that she might be receptive to Paul's words. It wasn't that Paul was so articulate and so wise that his words were so clever that it pierced through the heart. We're told that he just shared the gospel and the Lord opened her heart. It was the Spirit at work. See, in order for people to be saved, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. In order to continue to believe in Jesus, you need the work of the Holy Spirit. In order to hear God's word, we need the work of the Holy Spirit. We are called as followers of Christ to share the gospel and in our communities to teach and preach the gospel and to continue to teach and preach God's word. And it is necessary, but it is not sufficient for people to hear and respond rightly. It's God by His Holy Spirit that we might hear and have our hearts open. That we might hear and not just ignore or hear and just disqualify, that actually we would hear it as God's very word. And so as we sit under His word this morning, it's not a matter of me speaking entirely intelligibly, or me, sp I mean, that is kind of a prerequisite, a starting point. But it's not about how articulately I present the gospel. But if this church is to respond rightly to the word of God, it's his spirit at work in us. And so here we're told as they meet these people, Paul speaks, and Lydia's heart is open, she responds to the gospel. And they stay at her house, and this kind of becomes base camp for the mission at Philippi. And this is the origin story of the Philippian church. And this leads to the next part of the story. See, Lydia is a prominent woman in this city. But the next story is about a woman who has no status in the city of Philippi. Come with me to Acts 16. 16. 
said, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love how this story is told. This is the only miracle that was, that was started with some kind of an annoyance on the part of an apostle or a missionary. They're, they're on the way to this prayer meeting. This girl keeps following them and saying these things, and he gets so annoyed that he's like, you get out, and then it's done. That's it. That's how it happens. Now, the, the girl in this story, we're told, has the spirit of divination, and we believe that there is a supernatural reality, and that God is a supernatural being, and that there are forces of good and evil. And I realize that those are strange categories to modern ears. And that might have been one of the objections that you personally have to belief in the Scriptures or the Bible. But I want to say a couple of things on that. And the first one is this. Firstly, I've been surprised by how many people with a, I don't know how you'd say it, secular, non-religious background have had spiritual experiences that they find difficult to explain. Whether you would regard yourself as particularly spiritual or not, particularly atheist or agnostic, that it often is the case that there are experiences that, regardless of your background, we tend to explain away. And that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean much on its own. But it is the case that, regardless of your worldview, you do have to have a way of understanding these things. But I'd say more than that, there are also things that a materialist worldview just doesn't explain well, that doesn't have the language to explain well. That actually the categories of good and evil that belong to the supernatural world are often the best fit for some of the things that we see. See, there are ways in which the animal kingdom is so much more cruel than ours. But there are things that animals don't do that we do that are so much worse. In the animal world, they might abandon their young or even eat their own young to survive without any kind of moral qualms about it. But they don't do genocide or war or torture in the animal world. These are things that we would describe as naturally and instinctively evil. But there seems to be something much worse going on or something different going on. These are more than just natural evolutionary impulses. It's something that we describe as true evil. But regardless of where you stand, these categories that the Bible holds out are ones that we hold to be sure. And so this girl has been possessed by an evil spirit and she is following them. And not even being rude here, it's, it's hard to understand what it is that Paul takes objection to. In a way, it kind of sounds almost complimentary what she's saying. But here, he's annoyed, and he calls the Spirit to come out of her, and it does. And here, the response is entirely the opposite of what you'd anticipate. Look what happens after this incident. In Acts 16, 19, we read this. It says, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, 
he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So the owners are mad instead of amazed. They are so focused on profit and money that they don't care about the well-being of this girl. And they're so focused on profit and money that they don't care about what maybe has gone on here. And instead, they go and have Paul and Silas arrested. They have them stripped and beaten, and they have them put in prison. Now, when they were thrown in prison, how would you expect them to respond? Remember, Paul and Silas are here because they've, they've received a vision that God has called them to go to Macedonia. And now they've been there for a short amount of time, and already they're in jail. They've been beaten again, like Paul has in many other cities. And at this point, what would, what would they be thinking? Like, did we read the dream wrong? Or why is it that God has actually sent us here for this to happen? But now look at how they respond. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all of the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembled with fear. He fell, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into, the, into his house and set food before him. And they rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. So Paul and Silas get arrested. They get beat up. They're put in stocks and put in prison. And their first response is to sing. Their first response is to sing. This is a spirit-empowered mission that even at this point, when they've been in prison for no good reason, that their response is joy. Christians, followers of Christ, are meant to be singing people. They have been since, since the inception of the church and are called to be because of the joy of the gospel. And just on that, I mean, I wonder reading this story whether in modern churches like ours, whether we just have it too good. That it's the case that things are kind of, they're almost too good for us. We're blessed with great musicians who serve us week in and week out. And maybe it's a bit like, have you ever been like, sometimes we'll get a voucher to a fancy restaurant and you'll go there and you'll see that there'll be a family there where there are kids eating like, whatever, a $100 meal or something like that. And I think, that kid does not appreciate what they... They cannot possibly be appreciating what they're getting. If that's, if that's their, like, McDonald's for the week, then there's no way they're going to have a right perspective on food. Maybe it's similar for us that the music is often so good that it can move us to think that, yeah, the main, the main reason for singing is kind of how the band's going today. Like, we come to church and think, I don't know, I may or may not be in for, into it. I'll see what happens when the band shows up. We might be like, ah, look, these aren't really my songs. Or this isn't really like a list of bangers for me. I might just sit this one out. Or even just sit it out with my face, right? But here, there's no band. There's no worship crew. There's no heating. They're in stocks in a prison, and they're singing. And it's not because the acoustics are amazing. It's because they have the joy of the gospel. 
that actually this is how the Spirit works. That God's people, when they understand who God is and what they have in the gospel, can have everything else taken away from them and yet find in Christ joy even at rock bottom like this. And so we're told that they're singing and the other prisoners are listening in. And then there's an earthquake. And it's interesting that some miracles in, recorded in Scripture are described as miracles of intervention. That we believe that there is a God who is outside our known world who can intervene and subvert the laws that he has put in place in his world. But there are other times where miracles are miracles of timing. Where it seems that the description here is that this is an earthquake that was experienced in the region by the other prisoners and those around. And that it's a miracle of timing and that God has arranged this at just the time when Paul and Silas are in prison there. And we're told that the, the earthquake shakes the foundation of the prison such that they are, sh- they are shook loose of their bonds. And look at, looking at the story here, it's incredible to see the response of the jailer. Imagine, imagine being in the situation where you knew that even though a natural disaster had occurred, that you were going to be held personally responsible for it regardless. That his life was held so cheaply that if all of the prisoners escaped, even though it was nothing to do with his fault, that he knew that his best bet now was to take his own life. And you can also imagine the dilemma that Paul's in. This is the guy who just watched them get beaten and who personally arrested them and put them in stocks. And you can imagine at that moment him being like, yeah, you know what? You get what you deserve. You reject God. You treat me like this. This is what you get. But he doesn't. He calls out to him and he says, just wait, stop. We're all still here. We're not actually going to go anywhere. And in seeing this and understanding what happens, the jailer responds and just says, what must I do to be saved? And he asks this presumably because he knows why they're on trial. He was there for their arrest. He knows that they've been preaching this message about God. He knows that people are complaining about the fact that they're turning the world upside down. And now seeing this and seeing the situation that he's in, he's like, what have you guys got that I don't? And then we're told that they go to his house and that his whole family gets saved and right there they get baptized. And what's the result of this? There's joy. It says, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Where the Spirit goes, there is deep gospel joy. And as Paul and Silas rejoiced in prison, they now share this gospel with the one who put them there, and he finds this joy in God himself. See, a Spirit-led mission means that the Spirit guides God's people, that he opens hearts, and even gives joy in adversity. I mean, who would have thought that this was the most effective way to reach the people of Philippi? And yet this is how God designed it. He forbid them to preach the gospel in Turkey, sent them straight through, and then in the end puts them in prison just that this jailer and his whole family might find the joy of the gospel. There is no God like this God. And so if you're here and unsure about Jesus, I wonder if this isn't what you're looking for. A joy in all circumstances, a joy that cannot be taken from you even in death. See, in this passage, there were two very different types of people. There was someone who was very much looking for God, who heard the gospel and responded. And there was someone who at the beginning of his day had no idea that that's how his day was going to end. 
There is no indication here that the jailer in that morning had any thought that, that by that night he might be a follower of this person, Jesus. He probably had never even heard of him. And yet at the end, he and his whole family were baptized. I'm going to encourage you, if you're investigating Christianity, to look into this because this is the joy that all people are looking for. And if you are a believer, can I just remind you, as we look into this story in the book of Acts, to be a people who trust in God and who lean upon the Spirit of God. People who are Spirit-led will have three things. We'll ask for guidance when it comes to sharing the Gospel. We'll ask God to open hearts, our hearts and others. And we'll have deep Gospel joy. Now when you hear that, I mean the obvious thing is like, well, why, why wouldn't all of us be pursuing that? Why wouldn't all of us be asking that God by His Spirit would be doing a deeper and deeper work in our lives? And I think it's because of this. I think it's because it's kind of counterintuitive. Going back, this is the third oxygen illustration in one sermon. So I'm, just, I'm really keeping on a theme here. But going back to the, the scuba one, this is what I've heard, again, not having done it myself, that when you, when you go into deep water and the only thing you have to rely on is a breathing apparatus, that it's initially, for a lot of people, actually pretty distressing. And you have to sort of, by degrees, get used to that idea as you get deeper and deeper into the water. Because one of the biggest problems that people have is when they, when they get to a certain depth, they will panic and instead rip off their breathing apparatus and try and trust in themselves. And of course, from the outside, you think, well, that's insane. Like, if you've got oxygen right there, why wouldn't you rely on it? But there's something natural about us as humans that whatever feels most familiar seems like the safest thing to do, even when it's not. And so often the instinct that people have is that they start to panic. They think that maybe my breathing apparatus isn't working. Maybe I'm not getting enough air. And to take it off, which of course is going to lead to no air. But again, it's just instinctive. And I think to kind of bring it back to following Christ, I think often the reason we don't lean upon or depend upon God more and the work of His Holy Spirit is because it seems counterintuitive. Like, to be honest, I don't even know if that's going to make a difference. We pray before Bible studies. It's kind of perfunctory, but we kind of feel like, look, whether this lands or doesn't land kind of depends on how much effort we put in. We pray about things because we're like, look, we probably should as Christians, but I'm not sure it's really going to change the outcome of things. I'm not sure it's really going to have an impact on things. We meet before you know, our church gatherings even to pray, and we do it because like, that's a good Christian thing to do. But oftentimes it's not first on our mind that we're like, the prayers that we ask right now might actually change what happens in the next few minutes or hours. And it's not even from our experience. I mean, I think many people, and maybe you haven't, but most of us have seen God work powerfully through prayer. It's just that our natural inclination is dependent upon ourselves, to lean upon our own understanding, to lean upon our own ways of doing things. And because of this, we don't trust in God as much. We don't ask for His Spirit to guide us as to who it is that God might be putting in our lives to share the gospel with. To trust in Him that He might actually close some doors as well as open some doors. That He would actually open people's hearts to be receptive to the gospel. That often our thought is like, I, I have to have all the answers. I have to have all the, just the right words to say for every possible cultural objection and every calibration of it that actually that's how the gospel is going to go forward rather than trusting that God by His Spirit will actually open hearts. That there are people in your life who maybe you've even written off because you're like, look, that's, I just, 
the way I've tried to share the gospel with them, it's just never going to come through. We're called to lean upon God and to trust that His Spirit is powerful to work. And most of all, when it comes to joy in the Christian life, it's not something that you can just manufacture. You can just concentrate on and make it just please be more joyful. It doesn't work like that. There's the Spirit at work in God's people to see the greatness of God, to see the glory of the gospel, and to see the grace that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was how you first came to faith, and that is how you continue in the faith. That was the source of your original joy in God, and it will be your continual source of joy in God. And it matters because this is crucial to the mission. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher and minister, said this, The greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of a Christian faith. So if you don't have joy, that's another reason to feel bad. You're letting the team down as well. That's, that's kind of the summary of, of Lloyd-Jones' words. No, but his point as he goes on is that the call of the church is to have a joy in God that is a witness to the fact that God is real. This isn't an interest group. And it's not just something that you kind of do or just sort of carry out the functions of. Actually, what we have in Christ is joy everlasting, a grace that changes and transforms lives, and a newness of life that goes on forever. That there is only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ. And that offer of salvation is free to all who will believe. Let's pray that we'll be a joy-filled, spirit-led church. Father God, as we turn to sing your praises in these next few songs, we will have every reason to turn our thoughts back to ourselves. And what we are like, what we should be doing. But instead, Father, may you, may you turn our minds to you, to your goodness, to your mercy, to the salvation that we have in Jesus, and to the grace that we can only have through him. Father, we just pray that you would be strengthening us and encouraging us and teaching us to lean upon you and the work of your Holy Spirit, whom you have given us, that we might carry forward this mission and this gospel. Father, we praise you for the faithful generations before us, for the brothers and sisters in Christ who have leaned upon you and your word and the work of your spirit. And may we too, like them, trust in you deeply. That we might see you at work powerfully in our own lives and in the lives around us. And all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.